Welcome to Changing Conversations with Billy Burke and me, Sarah Philp. This is a podcast creating space for conversations with, for and by educators. Conversation is one of the oldest ways to nurture the conditions for growth and improvement. When we talk about what matters, we come alive and conversation has the power to guide us into new and different actions offering the potential for great things. We bring you conversations that have resonance both now and in the future. With the help of guests and the odd solo episode, we explore leadership, learning and well-being. We have the conversations we know you want to listen to. It's time for another episode in our World Education Summit mini-series. In this series, we're highlighting and celebrating some of this year's speakers. And we're delighted to reshare our conversation with a good friend, Peter DeWitt, on re-implementation. Peter, welcome back. It's lovely to have you with us again for the third time, we believe. Yeah, thanks. It's uh, good to see both of you and uh, thanks for asking me to be back. (laughs) Always a good friend of the podcast. Um, So we've chatted, yeah, a couple of times already and this time we really want to kind of focus in on something that's actually the, the focus of your newest book, which is not out yet in the UK. I'm not sure if it's out anywhere else yet, but it's not out in the UK yet on de-implementation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it will, uh, it officially will be out. It got pushed back because of COVID. Um, so it will be officially out on May 30th, I think, or something like that. It will be in the warehouse. Let me put it that way. So, <laughs> so it will be available soon. I think I've got mine on pre-order. So I'm looking forward oh, to that. Arriving. Um, so tell us a little bit de implementation. We can kind of guess what it might be, be about, but tell us a little bit more. Um, yeah, a bit more detail. What does it actually mean? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because you might think you know what it's about. And then um, as I was exploring the topic, it wasn't exactly what people thought. Mm-hmm. So Uh, Well over a year ago, I was having a conversation with Aaron Hamilton from Cognition, and Aaron and I were talking about the implementation. And it was just like one of those earworms that I couldn't get out of my head. Um, I just kept thinking about it because I was writing Collective Leader Efficacy, and I was focusing a lot on teacher and administrator burnout because it was something I had explored in my Finding Common Ground Black Bread Week. And... It was a topic that I had focused on. I have a web show called The Seat at the Table for Ed Week. And then I coach. And, you know, Sarah, you coach as well. So um, it it just came up so often in conversations about how people were feeling burned out. And we kept hearing about this idea of, like, you know, getting people to breathe. And we know that it's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. So it was about really offering practical steps. So they intersected the de-implementation topic, um, intersected with one of the drivers I looked at for collective leader efficacy, which is workload. Um, and I started to explore the idea of like, what is this, what does de-implementation look like? And John Hattie had sent me the research, it was from the medical field. And the implementation, the great, there's a great definition of it and it's called the abandonment of low value practices. Mm-hmm. But in the medical field, they go, it gets pretty complicated with what that means. And what I wanted to really look at are a couple of different things. First, how do we de-implement? And what do we do so we don't implement so badly in the first place where we have to de-implement? So as much as that word de-implementation makes people think it's about getting rid of stuff, 
-hmm. It's not necessarily about getting rid of stuff. It's about looking at how we implement in the first place and then understanding what's impactful and what we can either partially reduce or we can replace. And um, so that's what I broke it down to. And there's a formal de-implementation then an informal de-implementation as well. But it really comes down to that idea of what are we going to do that's going to be more impactful and do we have to do as much as we have been doing because we're just on this constant overload all the time. Yeah. And do you think, um, do you think this is the perfect moment in a way for de-implementation? Do you think we would have got here anyway? I don't know. I don't know if we would have gotten here anyway, because quite honestly, I'm not always known for my timing. So this was, <laughs> this was, uh, this was pretty good actually. But I think the more, it's probably one of the reasons why it stuck in my head so much when I was first hearing and then reading about the topic, because it was all in the medical field. And I just kept thinking, we've got to do something in, in education. There was an article that came out in the United States last year from NASSP and LPI Learning Policy Institute that showed that 42% of principals in the United States have considered leaving their job. And that is actually eerily similar to what I hear when I'm doing leadership coaching. I've actually had people either say they're leaving the position or they, they've considered leaving the position. And then I started to look at, you know, I started to look at research from the UK and it said 75% of teachers, um, you know, are showing anxiety and stress and starting to burn out. And that number was increasing during COVID. Australia, same thing, one in three principals have experienced burnout and they're also um, have been physically harmed by students. So there's all this stuff that was going on. And what also the research showed way back when I was writing about instructional leadership as well is over the past 20 or so years, um, when there's been increased accountability, what that's shown is that the workload has actually increased for school leaders and teachers. And so for me, it was a way to actually say, you know, de-implementation is not just a nice thing to have. It's mm -hmm. actually a, a valuable conversation that we have to have. Mm -hmm. And it led into a deeper conversation about even like how we explore workshops and when we go to conferences, because I've had, I've honestly had superintendents or uh, head teachers or building leaders come to me to say that they feel this pressure to go back with something new because their district or their, their building or whatever paid for them to be at the conference. So they feel this pressure to go back with something new. So it's like this huge, to me, holistic issue that we have to look at. It's not just about teachers and leaders anymore. You know, when we, when we start to look at when people come to conferences or workshops, there's often this pressure that they, you know, are looking for the next strategy mm -hmm. to go back with. And so on my side of things, from a consultant standpoint, what I've started to do over the past couple of years is define success criteria with the audience every time I present a workshop or coach or even give a keynote. Mm -hmm. And I use Mentimeter um, to be able to do it an online engagement tool. And then I asked them for their, their success criteria. Many times what I noticed, and it was during the research for the book, people would say that they were looking for strategies. I'm like, but what if you don't need a strategy? Mm. What, if, what if you're coming with the mindset of what are you doing already and how can I help inform your practice as opposed to let me give you something new to bring back? So I think there's even that piece that we have to be able to, there's a responsibility on the part of all of us 
to actually not make people feel like this is the next best, next best thing. And I understand the irony that I'm talking about de-implementation and saying we have to be careful not to make people feel like this is the next best thing either because all in all, it's about how is this going to inform your practice and is this something necessary for you um, personally or even professionally? Mm. And what sort of response do you get from, from people when you share de-implementation with them? Well, um, when I first started to share it, I guess when I was doing the research, uh, you know, I, I remember sharing it in a couple of workshops focusing on collective leader efficacy. And I made some, here in the United States, I made some assistant superintendents very nervous because they actually sent me private messages saying, you can't talk about that because what if teachers just stop doing stuff tomorrow? And I'm like, what kind of climate do you have in your school? That there's just going to be this mass waking up tomorrow morning. We're going to, ah, we're going to stop it all. You know, it was just really, it was really interesting to watch the reaction of people. And then what I also noticed is that when I started asking people what they would de-implement, and so in the medical field, there were actually four ways to look at de-implementation a partial reduction, a complete reversal, a replacement with an exist, uh, like a, an existing action or a replacement with a, like a completely new action. And I just kept thinking this is really complicated. And I had the space because it actually even offered in the research to break it down to, I broke it down to a partial reduction and a replacement action. Because what I found when I was coding everything that I was getting is that if somebody stopped doing something, they replaced it with something else, right? So it was really a partial reduction or a replacement action. And when I asked the audiences, and I asked hundreds and hundreds of people in you know, workshops and, and every, in keynotes what they would de-implement, it was really interesting to find that most of the things that they said they would de-implement are the things that they thought were being done to them, not the things they had control over themselves. And that created a space to be able to talk about, but what about your own practices? Yeah, we can talk about, you know, those initiatives that are coming down that you don't agree with, or that might be something that um, get in the way of what you want to be able to do. But what about your own practices? And then I was running a workshop one time and um, another consultant gave me a really great idea. She had them take out a paper plate and she said, you know, Peter's been talking about all these things all day long and you've been writing you know, copious notes and I want you to write down everything that um, you are going to take back to school. And people were filling up the paper plate. And then she said, I want you to cross off three things that you're not going to do. And they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't cross it off because they felt like, what if that's the thing that's gonna change you know, my practice for good? And even a couple of weeks ago, I was giving a, a keynote to superintendents in Washington state and I talked about what, what would you cross off the list and they wouldn't cross things off the list because they were worried that that might be, it's FOMO, the fear of missing out. What if that's the thing that I'm, you know, I should be doing. So it's, it's just leading to a lot of interesting conversations. And in the book, because of that, for the probably one of the first times, I actually developed a real process. So you've got formal de-implementation or informal de-implementation. Informal is something you don't need a team for. You can do it on your own, like checking them out less or you know, giving fewer assessments in the classroom. Um, but a formal de-implementation would be something like going from traditional grading to standards-based grading. I use that as an example throughout the book. Tom Gusky even looked at, you know, looked at it all to make sure that it, it seemed right. And even took them through a process where I created a de-implementation checklist. And, 
all these things because it's really a process that you want to be thoughtful about. So it's not just about waking up in the morning and getting rid of things. Sometimes if you're looking at formal implementation, it's being a more thoughtful about what you're doing and actually working with your team to talk through these really important steps to make sure, is this, is this the stuff we should be getting rid of? And is this the stuff we should be focusing on if, if that makes sense? It does, Peter. It really falls on from the last conversation that we had in the podcast with uh, Simon Breakspear. Mm-hmm. Right? We were talking about various things, but talking about um, how that it takes bold, I suppose, particular leadership, bold leadership to decide that we are going to focus more on something and less on something else. And that probably applies to what, to what you're talking about. I'm interested in the formal and, and informal because it, it strikes me as a head teacher that to make um, the formal changes that then needs engagement with a group within a system. Um, so t- tell us a bit more about how you think um, teachers and practitioners could could lead those conversations about the changes that they think could be made to make more space for what matters. Yeah, Billy, that's a great question. So uh, there are a few things that are at play there. One is you have to get the timing right. Um, you know, I work with a lot of leaders that they're trying to bring in new things at the end of the year. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. People are very burned out because of COVID. And we have to give them um, the opportunity to de-escalate and rest and, you know, get that brain break that they need and not hit them with, this is what we should do next year, right? So I think that timing is something that's really important. And I was always, I'm always, um, I think many times I'm in tune, like when I was a school principal, I I was in tune with my staff to know when they were escalated and when that wasn't a good time to be able to talk about these things. The second thing to think about is imagine being the head teacher that says, I wanna put put a committee together that we're gonna start talking about what stuff we can get rid of. Um, I'm thinking a a few people will wanna join that committee, right? Because you'll be the first guy to actually say, uh, I'm the leader who wants to take stuff off your plate. So let's start talking about that. I think that's an important conversation. Even I've used that at workshops where I've said, I am probably the only person you're going to see today that's going to talk about taking things off your plate. Um, when it comes to the informal, I think sometimes it's, it's, it's even better to start with the informal de-implementation first to give people uh, the feel for it. Because that almost is creating that grassroots effort where it's going to be ground up where you start saying, okay, so consider some of the things, like, honestly, I'm a little surprised that this was the big part of the topic over the past year that I've been researching it. But one of the topics that came up the most was email. People, you know, we have our phones with us all the time and people feel this this pressure to check email all the time. And I know I'm totally guilty of it. There were times that I would sit at dinner and look next to me and I have my phone on the table and I'm thinking, oh my God, Growing up, I know I had a phone on the wall and it was a rotary phone because I'm that old, but like the phone didn't ring during dinner. People knew not to call during dinner, right? And now we have these phones and we're just connected all the time. So talking with teachers about setting up boundaries and leaders about setting up boundaries. I worked with a superintendent here one time that had um, an email message, automated message that said, I check email at 7.30 in the morning, noon and five o'clock in the evening. And then I go home to be with my family and I will check email the next day. And that was his automated response. And I think we need to be able to talk about that because there is this pressure, whether it's self-induced or it's coming from your, 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 your leader above you, that you're supposed to be 
at the call of your leaders all the time. And even when I was a principal, I remember talking, I had a teacher that came in tired one day and she said that she was checking email at 10.30 at night. And I asked, I said, I have a question for you. And she goes, because she was tired, she got a nasty email. And I said, so I have a question for you. And she goes, I know, what did I do? And I'm like, no, why are you checking email at 10.30 at night? Like sure. who? And she said, well, I thought you wanted me to keep in communication with parents. I'm like, not at 10.30. I go to bed at nine o'clock. <laughs> like, you know, don't check email at 10.30 at night, but there's a self-induced pressure or there really is a pressure that you're supposed to be at the beck and call of your school. And that's just not okay. I mean, it doesn't mean we care less about the kids or our content or our profession. It actually means that we care more about it because we want to be rested, more present, more in tune. I saw a great uh, meme over the time during COVID that said, if um, givers don't set boundaries, takers never will. And I think boundaries are really important for us to be able to establish. So that's what, you know, that's where I think from your question, the informal is a great place to start because it gives people something to grab onto and start to get momentum and say, okay, because I'm practicing right now, checking email less. Um, I'm checking email fewer times during the day, which is not easy. But when you start to have those conversations, then you can lead into the, the formal stuff. Um, and that's where you, I mean, even in the book, I have a pacing chart, which is something I've never done before, but it's about going slow and steady right? And not always feeling like you've got to move on to the, to the next thing. Yeah. Interesting regarding the boundaries and the digital communication for teachers, because even uh, class teachers, knowing the way that we've had to evolve our work uh, over the last couple of years, are, we're, we're more technologically advanced and, and they're maybe more um, contactable directly for their young people, for their learners. And I think it's really important to set those expectations about availability and, and when we won't. Um, and in terms of managers and leaders and email, you know, I always sort of encourage, um, if it's really important, give me a call, come and see me. Because if you posted a letter, you wouldn't expect the person would receive it exactly 10 minutes later and then write back to you 15 minutes right. later. Yeah. So e email can be, I think, Sarah was mentioning she hears a lot of that in her coaching that it, it can be a pressure and a burden and I think you're absolutely right to, that a good place for us to start as individuals is think about these practices that we can control mm -hmm. um, to reduce the pressure on ourselves yeah I mean Sarah you know and Sarah knows this very well because of we both have a love for for mindfulness and meditation and I sometimes find that my mind is very busy and it's always on some meditation over the past years that I've been using it has been a way to, to sort of stop that constant feedback loop, email and texting and having your computer. I mean, you know, for people, for all of us working at home during COVID, the very first thing we would do is get up and, you know, come into the office. Um, I live in upstate New York where the weather is typically cold, um, <laughs> Not rubbing it in that it's hot and humid today, but uh, but it's you know during the winter it can be very cold, so there is no going to my back porch to hang out and have a cup of coffee. It was really get my coffee, come in, go to my computer at five thirty a.m. six six o'clock in the morning, and you realize you're working a whole lot more. So that that's always it's about reestablishing how you actually operate within your own house. Um, 
because we're so used to just opening up the computer and, and going into work because we feel that 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 draw, that pull to be able to do it. And, and it's about trying to quiet that down because um, you do need that that quiet space to be able to re-energize. Yeah, and I do hear that a lot. I hear a lot of people saying that the, the amount of emails has increased significantly during the time of COVID and that there is this feeling of pressure, whether it's self-imposed or coming from out with or a combination of, of both. Yeah that we should be replying and responding and keeping on top of everything. And actually it's with the rate that they have increased, it's not, it's not possible. No, and it's also what happens with that, Sarah, is it becomes an expectation. So if I answer you within 10 minutes, every time you email me and then I decide to stop doing that, yeah. there's an expectation on the other side that the person's like, well, she usually answers me within 10 minutes. I wonder why it took so long. Yeah. And that's just, you know, I even, I'm a huge fan of uh, Adam Grant's work. He wrote a book called Think Again and many yeah. other books, but I follow him in, on Instagram and he had posted a, a saying the other day about, you know, stop apologizing when you answer an email. And I'm sure you saw that one, you know, it was like, stop saying, I'm sorry for how long it took me to answer your email when it may have been less than 24 hours, right? You're already apologizing about being late. Just yeah. stop doing that. And I have to admit, I even, I don't usually make comments on Instagram posts of people that I really don't know personally, but I was like, oh my God, I'm totally guilty. <laughs> like he's talking to me. I, know. Um, I think we all thought he was talking to us when, yeah. <laughs> when he wrote that. Um, I also recently read um, Stolen Focus by Johan Hari, okay. which again picks up on a lot of this about how technology and other things like we beat ourselves up for being not productive enough not fast enough not on top of everything enough and actually what he's saying is it's a much it's a much wider issue than that it's it's it goes well beyond you and your own productivity and how you respond to things um but he was he goes into quite a lot of detail um on quite a lot of things but one thing he goes into is around um like social, me social media and scrolling. And I don't know if you remember, but it used to be at a point where you were at the bottom and there was just a few seconds delay while the next bit loaded. And what they discovered that people, that like millisecond was enough for people to move on. So now, if and I hadn't noticed that this had happened. Actually, that second has gone now. You can okay. just, you can literally scroll forever. And, and so it's how they're using human psychology to keep us on devices and I, I like the title stolen focus because that it, it's very powerful in that sense like it's not me that's purely at fault here but actually the world around us is now being designed using human psychology to actually keep us on devices to keep us responding to things quicker and increasing the pace yeah if you think about it I mean even in my I started teaching in 1995 and you know, back then was, I remember getting the first computers uh, in a classroom and oh, that was just amazing. <laughs> but I remember, you know, when YouTube started, you have 45 minute to an hour presentation on YouTube. And then all of a sudden TED talk comes in mm -hmm. where it's 18 minutes or less. And you're like, that's mind blowing. How can you actually do something in 18 minutes or less? And then Instagram comes along and it's, you know, three minute videos. And then TikTok comes along and it's 30 second videos. It's just, we're on this constant overload. And as I get older, uh, I just, and you know, you realize that life is short 
And I don't want to spend my whole life on my computer or my phone. There are, there are more important things to do, like being present with family. Um, because, you know, I've learned all too well over the past few months that, that with the passing of a couple of my family members, that those are things that you don't get back. So, you know, in many ways, I'm thankful because over the past few years, I've, I've been able to be with family and been able to really make a commitment to being with them every week and all that stuff. But I think people need to understand that an extra few hours of work every day and the, you know, my kids will always be there and my spouse or partner will always be there. Um, I'm sorry to say that's not always true um, mm. because that, that goes by fast. And I think the implementation for me during the writing of this book and then the editing of the book with everything happening, it really made me um, rethink that this is not just about your professional life. This yeah. is very much about your personal life as well. So, you know, to me, it's a it, it's an incredibly important topic for people to to at least consider. Yeah, yeah. Do you do you find that there are any kind of common challenges or barriers that 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 come up around actually engaging with it? Like you said, you know, in a workshop, people won't you know cross anything out. <laughs> what, they get what? mad. They get mad at me. Like they <laughs> really just get really angry. Actually, actually, it's kind of it's kind of surprising to see. Yeah, I think the other thing was the idea that they it's so easy to look at what's being done to you before you before you even look at what you're actually doing. Um, and during the writing of the book, Tom Gusky had written an article for educational leadership on self-efficacy. It was actually, had been a conversation he and I had, where does self-efficacy come from? Mm -hmm. So he ended up writing an article on the topic and he talked about internal, internal locus of control versus external locus of control. Mm -hmm. So at the time I'm writing this book, Tom had published the article, sent it to me and said, hey, I wanted you to see this because it was something that stemmed from a conversation we were having. And that idea of like, what do we have control over? What don't we have control over? Um, and even those things we don't have control over, we still have control over how we react to them, right? Mm -hmm. So de-implementation for me is about taking that conversation of, it's not just about what's being done to you, it's about what you're actually doing too, and bringing that into the conversation. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a really important element of it as well. Mm. You mentioned about having kind of, those deep conversations around what are we doing and the impact of the different things that we're doing and I guess one of the challenges might be because I hear it a lot the other way is like everything is a priority you mm -hmm. know you it's easy to say we need to prioritize but you look at all the things and actually everything is a priority so how do we how do we get to that point where we can get some clarity on that I suppose yeah I think we need to be able to step back um because to me, it's about conceptual thinking. Mm -hmm. When I'm often, when I'm working with very large districts who have a lot of initiatives, they will have, I mean, I've worked with districts that have up to 15 initiatives and they're like, but they're all important. Mm -hmm. And then what I've done is created a graphic with all the initiatives on it and then say, okay, let's step back down and see how they're interrelated. Like, mm -hmm. what does that mean? Let's talk about how they're interrelated. So we don't always have to look at these things um, so separately, because I think a lot of what we do is interconnected. So conceptual thinking to me is really important, but it's also about the fact that we need to have an honest conversation that not everything is a priority. Everything is a priority to somebody, mm -hmm. but it's not a priority to the people you're working with. Uh, I remember working with a, 
a large district where they had 13 initiatives. And the reason why I met with the directors, so they were at the district level. And one of the reasons why I met with them is because every time I met with the building principals, they would say, but this director is making me do this. This director is making me do this. So when I met with the directors, I had them write down all the initiatives they were having and engaging in. And then I had them go through a program logic model. And that was the, like the activities were the 13 initiatives. When it came to impact, I asked, what's the impact of your initiatives? And they couldn't name one. And I ended up writing a book, uh, writing a blog called um, Are You Activity Rich and Impact Poor? Because it was a conversation we had there. And what I tried to explain to them is, you know, this particular initiative is a priority to you, but it's on a larger list of priorities for the person that reports to you, right? They've, so you have one thing you're concerned about, but there are eight directors. So that means eight of these initiatives are being dumped on the head teacher or the school principal. Um, and we need to talk about, is it a priority? Can you rank them one, two, three? Or how are they interrelated with the things you're already doing? I think a big mistake that people make when they go to conferences or even when they start with a new initiative is they never explore how the work is being done in their building already. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I actually just created a YouTube video that I'm going to upload about um, professional learning and development. And, you know, the idea, do we go for a strategy or we do, or do we go to inform our thinking? Because part of the problem is people go to a conference, go back to their school and they'll say, I have this new thing that we have to start, this new initiative that we have to start. And ultimately what ends up happening is we make teachers who might actually be engaging in that already feel mm -hmm. like they haven't been engaging in it. And um, that ignores the hard work that they're doing. So I think one of the important things, and, and this was definitely something I explored in the book, was the idea of making sure that you are understanding how this work is being done in your school already, because maybe it's that not that heavy of a push in general. And that's also, that's where I talk about the conceptual thinking as well. Mm. Does so that make sense? Yeah, so really understanding the present in order to plan for the future. Yeah, that's why, yeah. You know, I've always felt like walkthroughs, learning walks, formal observations. I used to flip my faculty meetings. Those are all interconnected. They're not isolated incidents that we do throughout the day. That's why those things are so vitally important because if you're not taking those seriously, then you're missing out on what teachers are doing in the classroom. And you're gonna be the person that walks in and says, we need to do this because we have this problem. And there are gonna be teachers sitting there going, but I already, I already do that. What are you looking at when you come into my classroom? You know, so that's that's just part of it as well. And you mentioned so the focus on let's let's talk about what we'll stop doing. Um, I guess even if we were brave enough to score out those three things, right? You know, and pick one, actually then doing it. Mm -hmm. um, now, what you said at the beginning, I think, is absolutely right. You know, teachers will still be in school, pupils will still be in school, they will be learning. Just because we make one thing a priority instead of 10 doesn't mean that the day-to-day -day activity we're already doing won't continue. Right. I think you also make the important point that um, almost every new initiative that I as a head teacher could introduce as of next week, there's probably elements of it that we're doing already. Mm -hmm. There's not many radically revolutionary things that, that come along um, in a system out of the blue. Right. Um, so if we do decide to to focus on less, how does the cycle of de-implementation help us 
to keep a focus that we're actually achieving what we want. Yeah, I think Billy, that that speaks to. So I don't see the implementation as being revolutionary. I think it's a it's an important conversation, um, but. The reality is, I think people make a conscious decision. Some, most, many people, I hope, make a conscious decision every day when they're looking to say, nope, I don't need to do that because it's not going to be impactful or I'm not going to be able to do that to the depth that I want to. So I, I really believe that the implementation is, it's just a word right now, right? But it's something that a lot of people might make a conscious effort doing. Um, so that that's that's an important aspect. When I, when I created the cycle, it's just a cycle of inquiry. Once again, cycles have been around, you know, for, for a very long time, but it's more of that conscious effort to say, you know, what is it that we want to focus on first? Where, where is that idea that we want to develop first? And then go into the, you know, that's where you're going into the inquiry process. If we do this, then we're going to do this with that theory of action. But then it goes into the whole idea of planning. What does de-implementation look like? I offer a program logic model, pacing chart, de-implementation checklist. And then it's the actual de-implementation of that, you know, that particular initiative or that particular action that we don't need to engage in anymore. Um, there's even criteria behind de-implementation. I probably should have said that earlier, but there, there are four criteria uh, behind de-implementation. And you know, that comes from the field of school psychology. There's a great Canadian journal that focused on that last year. And the whole idea behind criteria of de-implementation is the fact that it's just, you know, most of it's that um, we don't need to do it anymore, or maybe we don't need to do it as much, or maybe we found something else that's actually going to be more impactful, or one of the ones that they put is maybe it's harmful to students and we just shouldn't be doing it anymore. And when I look at that kind of thing, I look at, you know, there's in the United States, there's a huge push during major high stakes testing to get rid of recess from elementary schools. So, you know, kids could have more academic time. It's like, that's harmful. That's honestly harmful to children. You need to replace that extra academic time with recess and give them a brain break. But one of the biggies that I focused on in the book was, um, was the idea of zero tolerance policies. Zero tolerance policies can be incredibly harmful. And we know they, they can be actually discriminatory and it was about replacing them with more restorative justice kind of kind of program. So, you know, that's um, that's how the cycle. It it kind of depends what you start with, and then you have to plan it out. And this is for formal de-implementation only, not the, not for the informal. But it's about planning it out, creating that kind of theory of action, planning it out, and then going into the steps of of de-implementing. How are we going to start making the steps away from that? Um, whether, you know, to, to do something that's going to be more impactful. I guess even with the informal approaches, you can almost um, put a date in the diary to hold yourself to account. Say, right, okay, did I step away from the emails on a Sunday evening? Yeah, I have, uh, I actually, in coaching, I've had people do that. Um, I, in my coaching sessions, I've actually had them add to the calendar, get away from your desk and go into classrooms. And yeah. uh, because I had to do that, you know, email, you get sucked into the emails, you get sucked into being next to the phone, or there's something that's really going to be important that's going to come onto my computer very soon. And giving yourself permission to have that calendar time speak up and say, get away from your desk and go into classrooms is, is I think it's a necessary step that some people need to be able to take so they can commit to it. Well, I think the the idea of, of, implementation not as just 
randomly giving up lists of things to do in your to-do list, but being really mindful and thoughtful about what informal and formal things could we do. I think it, it lands at a good time. Um, as you mentioned, teachers, school leaders will be at that phase of coming to the end of a session and thinking about next session. It's certainly something I'm really conscious of, Peter, is can I can can we do less uh, to do more? And, and I guess you've set that challenge of will I have a conversation about what things we can consciously uh, focus less on? And you know, I'll take you up on that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I know of districts now that are doing the work and um, because I'm working with them and they're, they're honestly putting all the initiatives up on a board and they're having people talk. They're having deep conversations about which ones are worth our time and which ones are the ones we should suspend or what are the ones that we need to focus on. It starts with that conversation first. And as a leader, you might be very surprised if, if, they, if you have a culture that people can be open and honest, um, you might be very surprised at what people, people come up with. That ties in with my next question. I was gonna ask you of the, the work you've seen and the conversations you've been a part of, what's, um, what surprised you the most or yeah, what's been most unexpected in terms of either people's responses or outcomes? That people are actually doing it. Um, I, I know that sounds shocking, but, you know, when I first started to talk about the implementation, write about it and, and do a couple of webinars and stuff, they were really popular, which was very exciting to see. But I sometimes worry that people like the idea of the implementation more than they like the actual process of doing the implementation, because it's easy to say, I want to get rid of stuff. It's a lot harder to decide which stuff it is that you want to get rid of. Um, that takes that takes time and effort. And so it's nice to see now that, you know, because some people had advanced copies of the book and that kind of stuff, it's nice to see that um, people are engaging in the process and I'm excited to see what is actually next. And I'm, I'm very excited to just have the book come out because I think that's going to open up more of an understanding of where people are going with the work with the work as well. So, yeah, that would be the biggest thing, Sarah, that they go beyond talking into doing. Yeah. And as the book comes out and more people kind of engage with it, what are you, what are you most curious about to see what happens? Um, what, the, what, you know, what they do with it, I'm actually considering for the first time ever, I'm considering of doing a, because I'm working with, um, I'm working with people in Australia, the UK, Canada, United States. And I'm interested in actually putting together a book of case studies. Mm -hmm. I've never done that before. I mean, I wrote case studies for a book, you know, Hattie come out, had come out many years ago, but I've never done case studies within my own work. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested in possibly in the fall starting a book of case studies from just different places around the world and how they approach the implementation and what they did with it. So I'm very keen to that. I'm also always interested in what people do with the work because many times um, they surprise me. They, they might engage in it in a different way than I would have thought of. So that's a great learning experience for me. I find that writing books, doing research, doing the work, running workshops, coaching, and as you know, full well, Sarah, from, from coaching, and Billy Yu as a, as a leader, um, it's reciprocal learning. I feel like I am, you know, learning at the same time that hopefully people are learning too. So, 
so yeah, that's what I plan on doing with it. I, I hope I get the opportunity. <laughs> and if you could encourage our listeners to do one thing on the back of this conversation, what would it be? Don't jump to buying the book. Consider the idea. Consider the um, my publisher would kill me for saying that, right? <laughs> but no, seriously, I, I don't think you need another book. I think what you need to decide is, is this really the idea and the topic that we want to be able to explore that we can commit to? Because that's what I want from it. I'm, I'm honestly really worried about the workload of teachers and leaders. I really am. I'm just, uh, you know, you can't coach and spend so much time with leaders and teachers. And I was in the role. I was a principal for eight years, a teacher for 11. And I still have so many friends and former colleagues when I was a principal. You, you can't hear them during sessions and not want to do something about it. Mm -hmm. um, I even, Andrea Schleicher actually wrote the foreword to the book because mm -hmm. my thought was, you know, mm -hmm. OECD talks a lot about testing, you know, PISA and that's what Andreas actually runs. So I contacted him because he's written a couple of guest blogs for me. And I just said, I've got a book on de-implementation. I wondered if you would be interested in writing the forward. And he did. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, you know, I'd like to hand this around to a few people within OECD and PISA, do you mind? And I was like, no, because I think that it's that important that we need to engage in this kind of discussion. So I want people to engage in this discussion to see if this is the area where they want to commit their time. Um, that to me, the conversation is what's important. If they decide that that, that, that is the very thing that they wanna focus on, then yeah, uh, you know, find the book and, and go through the process and all that stuff, but. Mm. I think that's the perfect way to end our conversation, inviting people to consider the idea before rushing out um, to buy the book, which is something I'm guilty of rushing out to buy books. <laughs> but I do also consider the ideas as well. But I do buy a lot of books. Um, but yes, I, I'm sure our listeners will absolutely consider the idea. And I'm sure many of them will also then go on to buy the book and to explore what de-implementation can mean for them. And I guess we all, all three of us here, I guess, invite people to share on Twitter and all the usual means, like what, what they think of this conversation what they think of the concept and um, what they do with it. But thank you as ever, Peter, for your time and your generosity with your, um, with your insight and with your wisdom and for encouraging people to, to think deeply about this idea. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always good to see the two of you. Thanks for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. If you enjoy listening, you can support us by following on your preferred platform sharing on social media or leave us a review. Thanks again.